Hey, everybody, this is your boy, Jay Mason. Welcome to another very special episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we take a look at what's inside the music industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to celebrate. Right now with me on Zoom, not only on audio, but video as well, I have Mr. Kevin Willie of Inkwell, former radio personality for WBLS. Got to get the echo, and also former executive for Columbia Records. He was inside of the phenomenon known as New Kids on the Block, George Michael, pretty much anybody that was on Columbia Records during the 80s and the 90s. Full force, I should also mention, go to YouTube to check out my throwback interview with Bo Legged Lou. Mr. Willie, thank you for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover. It's my pleasure. You forgot Mariah. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, you, if I say you forgot, I'll give you like a million more. Earth, Wind, and Fire. I mean, there's so many more. Lisa Lisa and Coach Jam. Regina yeah. Bell, you know, uh, all the damn stuff. So from LL, Public Enemy. So yeah, I did all that stuff musically and was an a person that, uh, you know, I did Surface. And my boss was a gentleman named Cecil Holmes. He's an incredible music guy. In fact, he had a birthday a couple of days ago. Uh, but big shout to Cecil Holmes. And, you know, he was my mentor. He's the person that brought me into the music business. Um, before that, I was a DJ and I love playing music. And he came to my club and recruited me there. He's a talent scout, so I was his talent. He was like, come work for me. And and you know, he taught me the taught me the AR business, which was really, really dope. Right. And you mentioned Cecil Holmes, so were you also around Larkin Arnold? Of course I was around Larkin. Yep. Larkin was an amazing character as well. Now what happened with, with that was Larkin was leaving the company when I was coming in. So he was at the tail end of his career in the music business then. And uh, he went back and started working with, with Clarence Avon. And uh, yeah, Larkin was the man, though. Yep, Clarence Avon, for those of you that don't know, the black godfather of the music industry. Pretty much everybody in the industry has had a Clarence Avon story, whether it be from Bill Withers, Dennis Coffey, Jamie Lewis, Elaine Babyface. And he's from my neck of the woods, North Carolina, Climax, yep. which is outside of Greensboro, but was raised in New Jersey. So if you have not seen the Black Godfather documentary on Netflix, check it out, Know Your History. So where did your love of music come from? And what was the point for you that said, not only I want to get into the music business, but also radio, working at a little radio station known as WBLS under the mentorship of the late, great Chief Rocker, Frankie Crocker? Rest in peace. That's my man, my mentor. Um, okay, so here's what happened for me. I caught the bug. Uh, my sister, here's what happened. My dad bought a stereo system for my sister who was going away to college. So she left for college in, I guess, uh, you know, August. And in September, my dad brings a stereo. He said, the stereo is for your sister. Make sure you take care of it. So, of course, I decided to play with the stereo. And he had records, but then I started buying records. And I would listen to Frankie Crocker on the radio. And then every record he would play, I would try to match the record that he's playing with the one I'm playing. With what I, so I went and bought a copy. So let's say it's, I don't know, Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's the way of the world. I would try to match that's the way of the world on the radio with my song, with this, my, my vinyl record. It was crazy. Of course, back then the needles moved over and went down. So by the time you got to the record, it wasn't in the right place. But I tried it. It didn't work. I realized it needed a manual turntable. So kept playing with it, trying to switch manually between the phono part and the radio, trying to match it. That was my first attempt at mixing. So after, you know, let's fast forward. A couple of years later, I guess I was around 17, I finally got a turntable. Uh, I had a turntable, no mixer, 
So I used the turntable, it was a manual turntable, <clears throat> and I used it to then match the radio with the song. And I was able to speed it up with my finger and try to match it. And I was like, I did it, you know? So that was my first desire to, to play music. Um, what I would do is, in, especially in the summertime, I would take my speakers, put them in the window, and play music, you know, with my one turntable, play music for the masses, for the people outside listening, hanging out. Um, and I did that for a while, for about another nine months, until I finally got a mixer and another turntable. That was my beginning. You know, that was the summer of, uh, I think, 1975. Well, so this is right around the beginning with the park jams and everybody making the bootleg cassette tapes having in the yes. beginning. Do not copyright. You know who you are. If I catch you selling my tapes, it's going to yes. be a violation. It's going to be on. Yes, yes. Those are the days. And, you know, um, you know, Spoolie G and Disco King Mario was a DJ who played in the, in the parks in the Bronx, New York, where I grew up. I grew up between Bronx and, and Brooklyn. And Disco King Mario was the hot DJ back then. He'd play in the park, and I'd listen to him and be like, okay. He basically played a lot of breakbeats. He played songs. Um, and him, like, he, his he was the master of the breakbeat. He would play the song, but then when you get to the break part, he found a way to extend it. And that was the thing with Disco King Mario. He would extend the break of songs, go from one break to another break. Um, so that sort of influenced me musically. And then, of course, you know, the great Chief Rocker. What made me, when I got, when I graduated from high school, I then decided to go into college and work in a college radio station. Again, because of my love for music and my desire to be a radio announcer like Frankie. Um, that was the beginning of it. So I went to college radio. I started as a radio as air personality. I developed all the way up to station manager. And I, I, after three years, when I, I was a junior, I was running the radio station just to show you my desire to, to do something special. Um, and again, following Frankie. Uh, so the next step was we would do parties for the, 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 the classmates, our classmates. In the, uh, there was a, a bar called the Rathskeller. They had one dollar beer. Could you imagine? I went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice in the 70s. The cops were there, you know, all police officers, not all, but mostly police officers, correction officers, for, uh, people, you know, studying law, et cetera. So imagine all these people getting drunk off $1 beer and I'm the DJ. It was amazing. Um, and so that's how I started my career as a DJ. Uh, so I went from the radio station to be a DJ in the clubs or really in the Ratskeller and then went from there to a nightclub. Once I got to the nightclub, it was on. Then I fell in love. I got right. to the nightclub. I saw the beautiful women, the incredible way they danced, and I was hooked. Right, because I could, yeah, because I could just hear those promos with all that reverb saying so and so is gonna be at fifty four or Paradise Garage, Zanzibar, or whatever. And the infamous story of Frankie Crocker at Studio fifty four was where he rode in on a white horse. Now, Frankie Crocker, for those of you that don't know, radio legend, and is responsible for what we hear today as urban contemporary, because before he came in the game, nobody was mixing in the songs like he was, and he had the foresight to take mm -hmm. a young man that was on WHBI by the name of Mr. Magic, may he rest in peace, and you get a little show yes, called Mr. Magic's Rap Attack. Now, this was back in the days when radio used to do this thing called day party, where you will only hear certain shows 
late, late, late in the mornings, you have your tape deck ready. So what do you right. think gave Frankie the foresight to say, hip hop is coming. Let me take this guy who got buzz on this little underground independent station, put him on a big station and have him spread it. Frankie was an innovator. He was a talent scout as well. He was an innovator. He wanted to, he was always on the cutting edge of everything. His ear was never, his ear never left the street. He was constantly checking for the pulse of New York. The DJs were the ones that really um, plugged into him. So I would call, give my playlist, talk about music. That was how he mentored me initially. He would tell me how to mix records. He, he gave me a hint. He told me the key to making it being a great disc jockey in a club is this. Play hits back to back to back. If you want to introduce a new song, introduce it in between two hits. I was like, oh my, and that was it for me. So I wanted it, all I wanted to do was do what he did, introduce new songs that people would know and love, use my ear for music, which was always a great ear, and use it to, to show people this is the next big hit. Frankie Crock used to have pick hits. He would tell people the record was a hit before it was a hit. So he hear a song, he knows it's great, he'll play the song and say, Frankie Crocker, pick hit. Once you heard that, you're like, what's that? Everybody would like, he, once he did it a couple of times, people got used to it. They knew if he said it was a hit, even if you heard it and didn't like it, it was a hit. And yeah. he was right. Yeah, because I remember there was a lecture that Teddy Riley did for Red Bull Academy about a year or two ago, and he was saying that BLS was playing I Wanna, and the crowd yeah. wasn't really feeling it, but Frankie said, this is a hit. I'm going to keep playing it. And sure this enough, that became a big hit for Keith Sweat. Yes. And, it, and, and, and let me add one, one more part to that. The intro of that song, I Wanna, wasn't a great intro. That was the problem for DJs. Because if you remember, it's I Wanna, uh, and then, so the beats, there's no beat. I Wanna, uh, and then said it again. I Wanna, uh, and then boom, 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 ow. Okay, that's how the song started. So this DJ, these two DJs, um, Mike Lewin and Jonathan Donka, they took the song and they remixed it and, blend, and, and changed the intro, put a beat in the intro, and then the song took off. So I was a DJ at Bentley's at the time, and I was playing it in between those two songs, but it wasn't working. It wasn't working because the intro was wrong. Once those guys went and did the, the, the intro, it got better. But Frankie was pounding it. He, he pounded it into everybody's brain, like, this is a hit, and it was. Right, and what I tell a lot of people a lot of time, you mentioned Full Force, full force at the top, that yeah. they laid the groundwork for what was to come with New Jack, and then Teddy yeah. came and really exploded, because Full Force, they were doing a little bit of that with their work with UTFO, Lisa, Lisa, yes. and the Colt Jam. So what was that like, seeing all of them taking their elements of hip-hop and early version of freestyle and turning it into the success for themselves and for Columbia? Oh, yeah. So what happened with them is, uh, I mean, I, I watched them all grow and develop as well. So what happened with Full Force is they gave me a copy of UTFO on a cassette. I was playing in Bentley's as a DJ. I played the song from a cassette, told everybody it was going to be a hit. Everybody's like, yeah, whatever. It was Roxanne, Roxanne. Of course, at first it was like, ah, what's that? And then a week later, it's a huge song. So, you know, breaking songs and music in clubs was easy for me. Full Force would give me copies of their music before. They always gave it to me early. And when they gave it to me, the, the, they were the reason, in fact, that I got a job at Columbia Records. Because Cecil Holmes was working with them and sort of talking to their manager, 
their manager was the one that brought Cecil Holmes to the club. He played, they played me Lisa Lisa first. It was on, they gave it to me on vinyl. It was an international record. It was signed to Columbia Records, but internationally from London. I played the song. It was amazing to me. I played, once I heard home, 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 that was it for me. I played it and I was like, but I only have one copy. You got to give me another copy. So they went and got me a second copy the next week and started playing it. That second week is the week Cecil Holmes came to the club and met me and I played the song for him. He said, I like it. So that was my intro into the record business. I went back on Monday that next week and met with Cecil. He not only said, I'm going to sign the record. It's going to be, your, it's going, I'm going to sign the record. It's going to be your first signing. But also he said, I'm going to hire you as an A&R person. You're going to be my scout. You're going to be my talent scout. You're going to work directly for me. And that's how I started my career as, an, as a DJ as well. As, I'm sorry, not as a DJ, as a record executive. Cecil Holmes sort of brought me in and taught me everything I needed to know to be an executive. Wow. So you kind of sort of got like the fast pass treatment where instead of doing like the mail room and work your way up, you kind of got fast track. Right. I got fast track because I had ears, um, which uh, thank God I still have because I can hear a hit before it's a hit. And I think that's important as well. So my relationship with radio developed that way with Frankie, et cetera, because I was able to hear a song, say this is a hit, and then we call in <clears throat> our playlist to the, the program directors, <clears throat> tell them what records were working, and then they would know that songs were hit. So whatever my top 20 records are, were, I would give in to them. Mm. As I grew and, and, and developed my stature as a DJ as well, uh, Billboard magazine had a, a point system that they attached to certain DJs. Some, some were like one point, most of them were one or two points. I was a six point DJ, which meant that my number one record was way more valuable than some of the other ones. Again, that's because my job, I felt based on Frankie and what he taught me, my job is to break records. So I was able to break records, then take them and sign them. That was the amazing thing for me. So I had the ability from a DJ to develop a song. I could also have artists perform as a result of me playing that song in my club. My audience would like to hear them perform. I developed them as performers. As I kept going and becoming this talent scout, I was able to play a song that I liked, take the song into the, the label, get the song signed, bring it back to the club, and explore the record. I did that with Break for Love by a group called Raise, and that was Vaughn Mason and crew. And Vaughn brought me the song as a DJ, but I was an A&R person as well. I was able to listen to the song, play it in the club, break it, and then bring it to my label and sign it. And that was just like an amazing thing. That was like, oh my God, I can do this. So I can hear a record, find it, play it in the club, then take it, sign it, and have it explode. So four and five and 600,000 records. Wow, and that is a rare skill to have. So that probably tells me that back in the day when there were ads and R&R, BRE, your industry trade magazines, that Columbia Records were always getting top ads because you were the record breaker. Now back to BLS for a quick minute. I want you to talk about those infamous master mixes. And this was back during the days where DJs would take a song that was hot at the time, do customized mixes, customized blends, and one of the premier master mixers that was featured on WBLS a whole lot was a man by the name of Mr. Shep Pettibone. Well, actually, he was on Kiss FM. Kiss. Right, he was on Kiss. I worked there, too, but mm. he was on Kiss. Um, the, the Shep's remixes were amazing. Mm. He wasn't, he was, 
kind of a DJ, not really a DJ, but he understood the mentality of a DJ, which was great because he knew song had to have a strong intro, a great beginning and something happening in the middle of the song, and then an outro so that you can blend into the next song. So he understood that. He was one of the first sort of mixers to do that. But on BLS, we had Sergio Munzabai and John Morales. They called them Eminem. They were incredible mixers as well because it's sort of two heads are better than one. They would take songs and recreate them, rework them to the point where like labels like South Soul and you know Philly International would call them and say, you know what? Just take my master and go make me a version of this. And that's what they would do. So they were incredible master mixers as well. I followed after Sergio and, and John Morales. John Morales and I were really good friends and we're in the record pool together. And so as a result of that, whatever he did or remixed, here Kev, here's a copy of it, here's an acetate of it. So I got that, that treatment. The other thing I did was what my best friend was a, a guy named Herb Powers Jr. He's a mastering engineer. He mastered pretty much any hot record back in the 70s and 80s and 90s and, and most of the 2000s. Um, if it was a hit record or a hit album, Herb was on it. If you, looked at the, if you looked at a vinyl record, if you looked at the very end, there's a line, it's like a scribe, you'll see Herbie's name, it'll say Herbie, Herbie Jr. And I have like a smiley face because he's always smiling. And sometimes he'll write things like to his wife, Angie, who I introduced him to, is like a really good friend of mine. And, or sometimes it will say something about Kevin or Sugar Daddy. So if you look at in the old vinyl records, you'll see that and you'll see my name there. Um, he would give me vinyl records or acetate versions, what they call test pressings, of the hit songs. So I had them early. He would come to the club and listen to the sounds and say, okay, I know what I got to do to make this sound good. I'm going to press it hot. He'd bring me the vinyl and then listen to see if, it, if what he did in his room, in his mastering engineer, in engineer room, matched what I was playing. And he did that incredibly well. So... Any hot record in the 70s that he mastered, I had it first. I was able to break it first and develop that into a relationship with not only radio, but record executives as well. Because I would tell them, your record is great, it needs this, it needs that, it needs whatever. And they would go remaster it to match whatever I said. So I was really a really influential DJ. Right. And with the radio wars that were going on in New York at the time with BLS, Kiss, yeah. and Disco 92, KTU, where yes. you're kind of scoping out the competition saying, hmm, Latin Rascals, Rascals are doing this with their mixes. Chef yeah. is doing this with his mixes. Paco is doing his thing with KTU. And kind of yeah. taking elements so that y'all yeah. can get number one in the diaries. Yes. And, and because of the fact that we had Frankie, we were always close to number one. Now, Kiss... Frankie ran, uh, Frankie ran WBLS. There was a time when Frankie left the market and went to LA. He actually retired. And a guy named Barry Mayo and Tony Gray then took over the airwaves at KISS FM. When they did that, radio then changed a lot. It changed tremendously. Um, the great thing for me was I had a relationship with Barry Mayo as well. And Barry Mayo, his, uh, his position, I mean, his, uh, his office was down the block from the club I worked at, which was Bentley's. He, so, I'm, so it was, we were on 40th between Madison and Park, and he was on 40th and Broadway, so about four blocks ahead of us. That's where he was. So he would always come back and forth and say to me, okay, what's hot, Kevin? And I'll tell him a record that's hot, and then he'd come to the club, take the acetate, if, it was, if that's what it was, go back and press it, play it, and bring it back to me. 
And so any record that I had that Herb would give me, I had first, he knew it was a hit. He'd take the record, run and play it on Kiss. That's when Kiss got really, really hot. Kiss was on fire because they always played the music first. There was no Frankie Crocker. You know, we had a different programmer. It made a lot of difference. Right. And what other, and what other cities and, and states did with their stations was they followed New York's lead, where if New York's playing it, we're going to adopt it and put it on our playlist as well. Correct. The, the program directors, especially with Tony Gray, because Tony Gray was not only a, a program director and like way ahead of his time, he would also influence other people. So when he played on KISS, other people in other markets, he would actually tell them, this song's hot here. And uh, I'm doing an interview. Sorry about that. Uh, so he would tell them that, you know, this song's hot here in, this, in the New York market. And as a result of that, they would then play it in the other markets as well. And I'm sure a lot of industry secrets were traded during those conferences like BRE and Jack the Rapper because I got the book for Jack the Rapper and some of the stories I heard in there, I was like, man, if walls could talk in those hotel rooms. Man, those are the days. Those are the days, man. We had a lot of fun. I'm not going to tell any stories about Jack the Rapper conventions, though. Right. Don't, don't, yeah, yeah. The statute of limitations are not up yet and we don't want to incriminate the innocent. <laughs> Wait, let me we, tell you one funny story, though. Well, I'll tell you one funny story. I can't, it's an it's X-rated story, so I'll try to clean it up. Luke, uh, this is when I was at Atlantic Records at, the point, at that point. Luke decided that he was going to do a, you know, they would have, like, suites in, in different, so, like, some guys like Luke would get a suite, and he'd get, like, a big room in a hotel, like a, a, a ballroom, like, and he'd rent out the ballroom, We'd have a convention, or you know, he'd have a party, he'd have some food there, and then he said, okay, turn the lights off, turn the music on. I'm gonna put some girls on stage. He'd get some girls on stage, and then he would say, the first one to do such and such to him, I'll give you $100, and that was on after that. <laughs> and so, people, y'all yeah. can use your imaginations, figure out what that something is, doing yes. a little strange for some change. Now, I read in the Jack the Rapper book that new kids actually performed at Jack the Rapper. Now, you being at Columbia during the time when they were signed from yes. you, what was that like seeing their phenomenon when they were originally signed as an R&B group and then that shift over to being marketed as a pop group? Okay, so here's, here's what you got to know. Um, you know, I was working for Cecil, and so Cecil was the impetus behind New Kids. Um, they wanted them to be the modern-day Michael Jackson, the Jackson 5. The first album didn't do what they thought it should do. So they worked, they were, normally what happens with a group that's new, they get dropped. We felt like it was important to keep going, so we continued with the second album. We recorded the second album, Please Don't Go Girl was a hit. To me, it was like, that's the single. So Cecil asked me, what's the single? And I said, please don't go girl. He said, why? I said, because it sounds like he's like a little Michael Jackson. And he's like, okay, if that's what you think, let's go with it. So then we went to the, uh, to the marketing department. We went, we, Columbia had a lot of uh, weekly meetings. And so we called it the label meeting. So we'd have a, legal, legal, a weekly, rather, label-wide meeting. So we played the song, and the response was like, okay. And we were like, this is a hit. And they were like, okay, not sure, but okay, all right. So they weren't that sure. One program director on the pop side, though, said, you know what? There's a station in LA. I want to just send it to them. 
I'm not sure I like it, but I'm not sure. I'm going to send it to them. I'm also going to send it to an urban station, BLS. That record took off in BLS and took off in that LA station. So much so, it was number one phones in LA and hot in BLS. Record, the rest is history. That record took off. Now, what we did, the set, what we did with the first album is we re-released it. Most labels would never do that. After the first, the first single started getting hot, we re-released the second album. We started hearing stories about girls hanging out and waiting in garbage cans and crazy stuff, chasing the boys. We knew we had a phenomenon. Right. As a result, that first album sold 12 million records. Just to show you. The second wow. album, I forgot the number, but it's like at least 15. The records took off, they exploded. So to me, it's like Columbia was a hot label because they made the right decisions. That label-wide meeting allowed us all to sort of um, express our real feelings about music. Yeah. And they listened. Yeah, because yeah, um, when we previously set up this interview, I told you how I interviewed both Danny and Maurice and how Danny was saying that the first version of the Please Don't Go Girl video, Maurice paid out of pocket for that. I think Larry Wu, um, that was the house that they used for that video, he managed Finest Hour, and that video was submitted to BET, then the pop phenomenon took off, and it was around this time they were doing Apollo, Soul Train, because you know Maurice's connections in the yeah. urban world because of the new edition, and then there's a video, I don't know if you've seen it, it's on YouTube where they were performing at this nightclub in Boston, and they were all wearing matching Jordan tracksuits, and it just goes to show how once they got to selling out stadiums, it was easy because they earned it the hard way. Exactly. They worked at it. Those kids did everything Maurice said to do. Anything he thought of, and he, Maurice is a very creative man. Whatever he thought of doing, he made it happen. And he knew how to dress them. He knew, you know, I, he was burnt from New Edition, as you know. So his thing was, he didn't like, you know, sour grapes, get angry. He went and made it happen again. He's like, I'm going to do it again. And that's what he did. Right, talk I about having lightning striking the bottle twice. And then also, Columbia was super white hot because you had this little guy from across the pond by the name of George Michael. And when yes. Faith came out, it was a multi-format hit. Got played on AC radio, Top 40 yes. radio, Urban radio, because I can remember his videos getting heavy rotation on Video Soul. And he won two AMAs for best male R&B artist and best male R&B album of 89. But unfortunately, yes. it was a backlash at that time when he won because some people felt like, how come he's winning our awards and this is supposed to be for us? Well, I look at it as music is colorblind, knows no color, especially artists over in the UK. They revere and love US R&B music. No doubt about it. You know, I think what, what happened with George is, you know, of course he came from a popular group and everybody knew that, but- Wham. George, Right, from Wham, correct. But George himself was a very charismatic artist. We also, speaking of Chef Pettibone, we, we commissioned him to do the remix on a song called I Want Your Sex, which was a huge song internationally. It was huge. And then on the other side was another song, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a remix that DJs and on black clubs would play a lot. Um, so, was it Hard Day? Say again? Hard Day? Hard day, that's it, hard day. That's right, hard day. So we were, I mean, let me tell you, Chef Pettibone made those records work. He was an amazing remixer, he really was. Mm, and then what was amazing about that record was Jam and Lewis did a remix for Monkey. 
Yes, they did. That's right. I forgot about that. You're absolutely right. Right. And, and was, then I had read an interview that Jamin Lewis said that George Michael was inspired to get them to do the monkey remix because he heard the cool summer mix that they did for Nasty for Janet. Yes. Yes, Janet. Oh, remember how hot Janet was? Jamin Lewis was on fire back then too. Um, right. And, you know, and, and going back to George Michael, what a charismatic individual. Like he had so much charisma, it was dripping off of him. And people loved him. And yeah, there was a backlash. I do remember that there was a backlash because they felt like the urban, the pop artists should not be getting urban rewards because it wasn't happening in, in reverse. And I understand that, but you know, I look at Hall and Oates as just as much an R&B group as they are a pop group. So you know, it's not so much the color as it is the the influence of the music and what they were trying to inspire. Paul Notes music, just like George Michael's music, is urban music. You can call it pop because he looks like a pop artist, but it's really urban music. Right, definitely that. And the one thing that I appreciated about going back to New Kids was that they always made acknowledgement that, hey, we love R&B. We're not ripping off R&B music. New Edition That's paved cool. the way for us. And mm -hmm. we want to include more R&B, even though our bigger hits were more popular. Right. It was natural for them. They were urban kids. They were, you know, they weren't suburban kids. They were urban kids and they were influenced by that. And, you know, and Maurice kept it that way. But Maurice also knew that <clears throat> the greater market is the pop market. It's larger. It has more influence. So if you can take a group like that that looks like them, do urban music, it's going to work in the pop world. Right. And you know what? It's still happening that way today. You know, it's still like that today. Right. And it kind of gives me wonder with the boom and Latinx artists, how yeah. Menudo was white hot during the mid 80s yeah. and how they didn't really try to cross over into the English right. market. Because I can remember when Ricky Martin joined the group, they started doing Pepsi spots, which were only shown in Latin markets and just how the phenomenon exploded with Ricky, Shakira, the late Selena and Bad Bunny, all the acts that came after them, how had things would have been different. Say, so, hey, let's capitalize on this demographic and have a wider, broad appeal. Then I think Menudo probably would have had the same success like a New Kids because they were huge in the mid-'80s. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I can't hear you. There's some noise in the background here. You got to forgive me for a minute. No, that's quite all right. So Menudo was super huge in the mid-'80s. Now, around this time, we're going from late-'80s to early-'90s. And a little singer by the name of Miss Mariah Carey comes yes. into play. So what was your first impressions, him or her, and what was the marketing strategy behind her? Mariah, you know, the, the, the strange thing about Mariah was she was incredible from day one. She didn't have any flaws. When she first came to us, she was sort of a, a singer with a background singer with, with um, Brenda, Brenda K. Stone. Yes. And so she wasn't like a star yet. The guy that I can't remember his name, but she had a boyfriend that was a producer and he produced all these songs and brought them in. And he was like the real guiding force behind him. He was really pushing her hard. And the label was not really feeling his music. They were feeling her, but not his music. The problem was they were a team. And so we had to figure out a way to get them to separate. So we let him do the album, you know, work through his vision, and it just wasn't great. And we were just like, let's try one producer. We did one song with another producer, and it came out amazing. I can't remember the producer's name at the time, Rick. I can't remember. But so we had him do it. We had to do another song with somebody else. Her voice was better. She was just better. It was a better song. 
Although it wasn't the song that we believed was going to make her a break, a breaker, we knew it was a better song that her voice wasn't being taxed the way it should be. So then we said, okay, let's try to take some chances with her and do some other songs. And we started developing away from her original producer. And then finally, we just, by the time we finished the album, it was like amazing. And he wasn't, he wasn't even involved in it. You know, sometimes an artist um, has that something and you know how to get it, but that person can't bring it out of them. So Mariah was a project that took a long time to put together. Once we nailed it, we nailed it. Yep. Once you heard Vision of Love, you're like, that's it. That's it. You know, yep. that's her. That's what she needs to be. Once we got to that, it was like, yeah, the rest is history. Yep. Like you said, the rest is history. Mariah won the top selling female artists of all time. Christmas yeah. song gets played every year. Ka-ching, ka-ching, money in the bank. So now with the marketing strategy with Mariah, was it kind of the same approach that Clive had with Whitney and Arista where her sound was urban, but we're going to put her more pop. And then as we saw later in Mariah's career, she started getting more urban and sound once she did the fantasy remix with ODB and then later on. Well, I think Mariah always wanted to be an urban artist. You know, she knows who she is. She was always going to be an urban artist. But we knew that the marketing for her could be pop and huge. And we were like, let's focus on the great songs. Forget about the, you know, what they are, what they, are they going to be urban songs or pop songs? Let's just find a, a bunch of great songs and develop them into whatever's going to work. And that's what we did. We found some urban songs. They, didn't, they weren't great. We found some real poppy, poppy songs. They weren't great. Her album, if you listen to the first album, was a great mixture of urban and pop. It was just her. It was her own style, her own flavor. You know, the bird call, that was like amazing to me. It's like a girl that could sing that, not that many artists could do that. So, you know, she, she had it, that it factor. And we recorded a lot of things. And then the Christmas album, uh, same thing with New Kids. We did a Christmas album with New Kids because Christmas was huge, huge, and the kids loved them. We were like, there's no kids. Alvin and the Chipmunks, that's about it. You know, there's no young urban album like that. There's no young pop album like that. So we did it, and it took off. Same with Mariah. We were thinking about classic songs, what she could do. And she loved that. She loved the idea of that. She went and nailed it. And right. her as a writer, that's the real key to me with Mariah. She's a writer. So whatever we did, she was able, she, whatever she wrote, she was able to translate vocally. Mm -hmm. And... And you mentioned at the top, uh, Surface, one of my favorite groups. But it's, I didn't notice until recently that Happy was originally cut by this British group called High Tension first, then Surface right. recut it, and it made it a hit for them. Now, what was it about Surface that was so special as far as their sound that translated not only for them, but also for records that they did for others, primarily Jermaine Jackson and uh, Don't Take It Personal? Okay. What happened with Surface, I think, is that they were – an incredible group, an incredible trio with great songs. They pretty much wrote and played everything. They played all kinds of, I mean, Pick Conley plays all kinds of instruments. He plays the oboe. Who plays the oboe? You know, plays the flute. Yeah, it's just amazing. They were amazing musicians. Um, and so what was great about it was that um, they just came with songs. They would come to us and play album, like play their album or their songs. And we'd be like, wow, that's amazing. Song one, amazing. Song two, me and Cecil would just sit there and be like, you know, we, we commissioned the album, tell them what direction we wanted to go in. And they would go do it. They would go nail it. Wow, this song's great. 
oh yeah, and we were like, well, you know, you need that classic song. You need that song that urban radio is gonna play, that pop radio is gonna play, Shower Me With Your Love. We told them we wanted kind of a, a great song that would like play everywhere. They made a wedding song. And they were like, yeah, well, you guys are saying like a classic song, so we made a wedding song. Shower Me With Your Love. I mean, you know, uh, that's, that's what I think about great writers and great artists, that they can, you, you can have a vision as, a, as an A&R person, they can capture the vision and go make it work. That's what's right. great. Surface was that group, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a three-member group that you would not think, like, I mean, I always told them that they needed to have a female involved and they thought I was crazy, but I can't remember the song, but they did do a song with the female. I was like, should have done that all along. And I, again, I don't remember the song. <clears throat> but I think as an A&R person, as a lover of music, always searching for that thing that makes them different or distinct or separates them from everybody else. So I was always like pushing the envelope that way. That's just kind of what it is. Right. And with you being an a and how do you strike that balance of letting the artists be creative when they're in the process of making their album as opposed to standing over the shoulder and saying, hey, you got a deadline to meet to turn in this rough cut of this album? Yeah, I never did that. I never did that. I always gave art, and maybe sometimes to much to my chagrin, and the label wasn't always happy either. When I went to Atlantic Records, I had albums in production that took like over a year, but they were great albums. So, I mean, to me, it's like, that's what it's about. To me, when you, again, just my musical uh, background says to me, great music is great music. You can't force it to be great. It has to be great. So I always felt like if you're forcing it based on a time frame, you're not going to get there. Um, I was, I've been successful because I let people be creative. I gave them the parameters and they made it work. And, uh, and that, that's what I think works. I think as an a person, you're not, you're more of a director than a dictator. You're more guiding their creative talent through the, the maze. My job was to, to work through the label to get the most success out of the artist. So I had to lobby the promotion department or, or the video promotion department or the video production department to get the right video to capture the image of the artist and take it where it's got to go. Right. That's my job. Right. And then as an artist, it's a tough balance between commercial and commerce because let's say you had a huge hit album. And then, of course, most labels, as you know, are risk averse and like, hey, if it worked for us once, want the same results. But if the artist says, no, I want to go into a more creative space and it's a departure from what works. How do you allow them to say, hey, we want the hit, but we'll allow you that artistic integrity? Because I know for A&M, they wanted Janet to do a follow up like control for the second album, but yeah. she chose to go socially conscious with River Nation. Right. I think that that's, that's the conversation. That's the balance. Sometimes what I would do is I'd let them go and do it. And sometimes it comes out great. Sometimes it doesn't. That's the, 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 the talent of an A&R person is, <clears throat> excuse me, to get out of people what they don't even know is there. Sometimes you're pushing them in a direction and they'll be like, I don't really want to do that. So I'm like, okay, you know what? What do you want to do? I want to do it this way. Okay, go ahead. Go do it that way. And then when you finish, let me know what you got. And then they do it and they're like, you know, how they come out? Eh, that's all right. Okay, now try my, try my vision for it. They do it. If it comes out great, again, I'm a DJ. So for me, if I'm a DJ, I'm going to look at what's going to work in the clubs and work on the radio. So I'm expecting that. I'm expecting that commercial hit. Sometimes they can't match it. 
So I have to figure out a way, you know, use my skills as a communicator to get them to do it. I've been very successful at that, thank God. Mm. And you mentioned Atlantic Records. Did you have any interactions with Sylvia Rohn and Merlin Bob? Yeah, I worked with Sylvia. I worked with Sylvia and Merlin. Um, you know, I was head of A&R there. At, I, worked, I signed the group intro. I worked on LaVert. I worked on uh, pretty much everything that Columbia had. <laughs> I mean, that Atlantic had, I worked on. So New Kids, uh, not New Kids, I'm sorry. MC Light, uh, LaVert, like I said, Men at Work. Uh, Rude Boys, yeah, I don't remember all of them, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Because speaking of Atlantic, I had did an interview with Chucky Booker, and he and yep. he had told me that Turned Away was originally supposed to go to Troop, but what happened right. was he played it for Sylvia. Sylvia said, "Nope, this is going for that's you." And once he told Troop that, that's how you got spread my wings. Yep, exactly. Which was, if you really think about those two songs, they're very, very similar. They're very similar. Right. Now, so. can you tell me what happened to The Real Seduction? They were signed to Atlanta, and I thought they were underrated. I signed them. I signed them. They were an, an amazing group. Amazing. We just couldn't get radio to get it. Their imaging hurt them. They were, if you looked at them, they, they toured with MC Hammer. They were an incredible group. They were good-looking guys, but they had strange hair. They were, like, unique-looking. And the world of music just didn't wrap their arms around them. They had great songs. They just couldn't, they, they couldn't get past the image to hear the songs, unfortunately. Right, because right. there is real album, dope album. And I want to see if maybe you could clarify this for me. Was Ain't Nothing Wrong for them? Was that written by intro? Because it sounds very intro-esque. Like Kenny Green and Dave Hall. Yeah. I thought so. I and, thought it's so. It's a hit record. We could have used it for intro, but they, I mean, it was such a great song. Radio just wouldn't play it. And because they, they looked at them and like, I don't know about these guys. Yeah, but intro though, these guys already were established for it, putting out their own records, writing for Mary J, for yeah. Shinehead, Kenny Green, may he yeah. rest in peace. Yeah. Very, very great pin game, nasty, yeah. vocally, yeah. nasty. Their yeah. new life and their debut album, for me, those are no skip albums. Right, right. Played the entire thing, you know. Yeah, I, I did the debut album. I didn't do new life. I did the, the first album because I left Atlantic after that. But, um, you know, I, that was a group that I love. I still love. I just did an interview with them a few days ago, you know, and, and still, you know, stay in touch with, with Jeff and Buddy. Um, that, that one thing I can say is I wish we had put out more singles. It was an album full of singles. And I defy anybody to listen to that album and say, oh, that's not a hit. Every single song on that album is a hit. The album sold well. The singles sold well. Uh, Kenny was, you know, Kenny had gotten sick, and that's what really destroyed the group, unfortunately. You know, he got sick and died, and, you know, he, you know, suffered from HIV. And, unfortunately, he became a victim. Uh, what an incredible guy. What an incredible singer. You know, I remember the final days of his life, spending time with him. I remember I used to go to, he was uh, in like a rehab place and I would go with my daughter and hang out with him. I would rub his feet and, you know, he was always saying, my feet are so dry. Nobody wants to touch me. And I was like, I'll rub your feet. He's like, you will? I'm like, yeah. You know, they gave me this lotion to put on it. And it's like, you know, when people are suffering that way, nobody touches them. And you don't think about that. And to me, it was like, I'll touch him. I just didn't expect that he was going to die. I just didn't. And it was so sad to me. It's like, wow. 
And I spent a lot of time there. I spent a lot of time, you know, hanging out with him. He would call me, are you, are you coming? Because sometimes, you know, I get caught up in time. Are you coming today? Yes, I'm coming. What time are you coming? Well, Kenny, about an hour from now. He said, okay, when you come, I want some shrimp. Okay, how you want your shrimp? I want fried, you want fried rice? You want shrimp? No, I want fried shrimp. Yeah, I want rice too, you know, you do that. And I just bring it to him and, you know, I, the final days of his life was good. You know, it's unfortunate though that we lost him. And, and I think the impetus for the albums was all three of them. It wasn't just one person, but I think after he was gone, the, the whole vibe left. You know, I think the guys could have continued, but, but I think the vibe left. Mm. And I always wondered if, what would have happened if Kenny lived. He'd be a superstar right now. So would the rest of the group. Right, because I know just recently, a year or two ago, Dame Lillard, he put out a track with sample Don't Leave Me from oh, intro. Wow. And, and I was like, yo, that's, that's crazy. I mean, the album came out in 93. I was eight at the time. And I remember wow. seeing Let Me Be The One and Come Inside in heavy rotation yeah. on video. So, of course, the radio edit, of course, they didn't play that full long conversation Ooh. at the end. But right. once I got older, I knew what that meant. But was right. there some acts that you had a chance to sign that you passed on and later became superstars? And you're like, Not man, the one that got away. Not too many. Uh, the one that got away was Jay-Z. That was the one that got away. And, you know, I signed him to a, a production agreement, uh, put together the first album, which was Reasonable Doubt, and, you know, got everything ready, played it for my superiors, not saying names, and they didn't get it. And I was so hurt. That made me say, if they don't get this, what are they going to get? That hurt me to my heart. Um, right. To lose an artist like that, knowing what it's going to be, and they just don't hear it, that's, that made me say, maybe this ain't for me. I'm going to go back and be a DJ. And that's what I did. I was like, I, had, I was so much more fulfilled. At Columbia Records, I was really happy. At Atlantic, it was really harder for me because I didn't think that the, I don't think the climate was the same. Columbia was like a, a college, you know, like, like working, like being a Harvard pr professor or something. Um, whereas, you know, it felt like Atlantic was not that kind of label. Their vibe was a little different. So it was more like, you know, like, like a community college or, you know, a four-year college, not a university. It felt like that. And I think that it was treated that way. Columbia was treated like the best of the best. Atlantic was never treated that way. Atlantic, as a, as a label, was not seen. It was seen as an urban label, and that's it. It had pop acts. It had pop artists that were urban. Glenn Jones, you know, another great artist that I signed. Incredible singer. Could sing anybody under the table. I don't care who you put up there. Put Glenn Jones in there. And let's see who goes for it. But again, the label could only take it, but so far. I always felt like if Glenn Jones was on Columbia Records, he'd be a superstar right now. He'd be John Legend. That's, that's what I think. Right. And speaking of true, like their Attitude album, great album, the early beginnings of a young Dallas Austin who was brought into yeah. the industry by George Spinderella Irby for Climax. And yeah. Spread My Wings, great record. And I felt Troop could have had the same pop push like New Edition. Yes, but I think what happened with Troop is they wanted to produce their own albums and not have other people do it. They wanted to write. Because what happens is you want to share in the income as well. And if you can't, if you can try all you want, if you can't nail it, that's the hard part. Mm. You know, 
that's what I think happens with, with groups sometimes. They have to know, this is what got you here. Roll with that. Don't be like, I want to do my own. You can't always, sometimes you can, but you can't always turn your back on what got you there and just say, okay, well, I, that was great. Then let me do that. And this is always the album, the situation with artists. The second album doesn't match the first one. Because the second time they're like, well, I did it for you. Now I'm going to do it for me. And, and that's what I think happens. I think Troop is an amazing group. I think still to this day, they can sing their butts off. And, but I just think that when it comes to the creative thing of album making, it's really hard. And it's not new. Barry Gordy went through it too. You know, Barry Gordy hated Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album. Hated it. Thought it was never going to hit. Didn't like the fact that every song went into each other. Right. That was the genius of Marvin Gaye. You know, right. so sometimes it works that way too. And do you think with the success that MCA was having with Bobby crossing over with Don't Be Cruel, New Edition of Heartbreak, and BBD with the Poison album, that kind of caused the other labels to be knee-jerk and say, oh, MCA is scoring massive urban and pop success with these acts, and we got to really counteract. Yes, but what happened, I think, with them is they went LA and face crazy. Jam and Lewis, L.A. and Face. Jam and Lewis, every album was those guys. So, <clears throat> of course, you're going to be able to have that success when you have the best writing teams in the world writing. So I think the labels tried to compete, but I think we were competing in the wrong way. So, you know, as I look back, you know, hindsight's 2020. I think, like, what we were doing with intro was so different from what Bobby Brown was doing and BBD was doing. We had our own lane, and we were in our lane. Um... And at that time, we were like 18 or 19 other male groups out there. So we had to find our own niche and live in it. Um, and, and that's what Intro did. What happened other than that was other artists were trying to copy everybody else. The copiers are always going to sound like copiers. The ones who are unique are going to always win. Cream always rises to the top. Right. And that I agree because once Love Thing came out with samples, What I Am by Eddie Brickell and the New Bohemians, that was... Yeah a dope record because you never thought somebody would sample that record and I believe uh, Brand, Brand Nubian sampled that first was Slow Down and right. it had that mashing of hip hop but still with the melodic sounds of R&B which was kind of starting to take shape with what Andre Harrell may he rest in peace and Diddy was doing over at Uptown. Correct and if you add to that what we did with Brandy was we, get, we put her like in between that. We took, again, the young voice and put her in between those two idioms. So those two, so that she wasn't a hip hop R&B artist, but she wasn't a super pop or polished urban act either. She was like right in the middle in the kid lane and she won. And that, that, was, that was the thing that Atlantic was good at. They can, if you find the lane and you put them in that lane, they can roll through it. But if it's something too new, they can't do it. And that right. was the thing. So Jay-Z was a, a bridge too far. But for me, it was like, that's where we need to be. But MC Light was in that sweet spot. They could do that. Jay-Z was stretching it too far. Um, I don't know. As the talents came out, they worked at two different kinds of labels. Um, I like the Columbia way. Be able to be great at everything. They were great at urban. They were great at pop. They were great at jazz. You know, not everybody can do that. Most labels can never do that. Columbia, the Sony system is set up for hits. If you can bring massive hits back to back, you're going to win there. 
And that's what we did, you know. Right. Manic was set up for more boutique. One thing, pull it through the pipeline. Another thing, pull it through the pipeline. It's got to be in the middle. Can't be here or here. It's got to be here. Right. You can either be a full service restaurant and serve everything, or you could be like McDonald's yeah. and just specialize in burgers and fries. And speaking of that formula, yeah. we have the No Limit Chronicles that's been airing on BET right now and seeing what Master P and his legacy in the music industry, what was your thoughts when he was able to get that 80-20 deal with priority? Because that was unheard of for an indie label unheard to be of. able to keep 80% of the money and you're putting the money out yourself for the marketing and the promo. And normally, traditionally, most contracts are not set up in favor for artists and our executives. Well, we kind of did that with, with the Def Jam deal that we did. Um, it, was, it was definitely heavy loaded. We had different numbers for different artists and everything like that. But the marketing came out of the company. But Russell was able to direct the marketing and the promotion as much as he could. Even though we had our in-house promotion guy, he was able to have indies that could work the records separately, build the buzz, and then Columbia could rush it through. Um, that formula works. It worked a lot. Um, we, not everybody saw it that way, and I thought of it as an independent label. You have to do that. So I, you know, I think, I mean, of course, Master P was the extreme of it. 80-20 was unheard of. But to me, that's what he had to do because he knew how to build it to a certain level, let everybody benefit from it. Take it to that level, and then you guys push it through. That's a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. And then Columbia um, got in the game with, yeah, then Columbia got in the game with a young guy out of the A by the name of JD with So So Deaf and Crisscross yeah. exploded with Totally Crossed Out and then later came out with Escape. So what led Columbia to say, hey, I want to take a chance on what this guy out of Atlanta was doing. I heard of at a time because people still thought of the South as slow, country not really pulling out of any substance and as we see now the south is pretty much on top of everything and we have well, JP that, that, that sort of thing. came out of a deal that i did with uh um two guys joe nicolo and um and his brother his twin brother phil and uh chris schwartz they had a, a label called rough house out of philly so, out of philly correct so that was a deal that I put together and that deal you know came, of course jd came from that you know, crisscross came from that. The Fuji's came from that. Uh, and so, you know, to me, the great thing about the label and the working there was I was able to tap things that I thought would work. My boss at the time, Rick Chertoff, was like, cool with Phil Niccolo. And he was like, yo, you need to talk to these guys and see if there's something we could do. I talked to them. I liked them. I said, yeah, let's do a deal with them. And look what came of it. You know, so it's like, again, I'm a talent scout. I was trained as a talent scout, but my thing was, I felt that Columbia was able to find other talented people, bring them into the fold, and make hits. That's what I'm great at. That's what I did well. Um, more at Columbia because that's the system than Atlantic because that's not the system. And that's what I, you know, I grew up in that. And I, I, if I had to choose again, I would do Columbia all day and twice on Sunday. Right. And you knew how to break it no matter what it was. Right. And being at Columbia, did you also have interactions with Mr. Einer, Donnie Einer? Yes, Donnie Einer, in fact, was my boss. What happened is, um, uh, so it's sort of a story about that. When Cecil and I were working the label, we had you know, a lot of success with new kids and Surface and Full Force and Lisa Lisa. And then the company heads took over. Tommy, uh, Tommy Matola came in to, you know, to run the whole label. 
we thought he was coming in as president of Columbia. And he became president of Columbia. And then soon after that, he became chairman of the whole group. It was like, what? So out of nowhere. And so he brings in Donnie as president. And that was kind of a head twister because we were rolling. We were good. We were successful. Didn't matter to us. We had <clears throat> collectively between Cecil and I, the most successful artists on the label. So we were like, we're good. Um, Donnie pushed a lot. He pushed me on Mariah. <clears throat> he pushed a lot on um, New Kids, on that Christmas album. He was like, let's make it great. You know, he was a great guy. Donnie was great. He pushed hard. Mm -hmm. So what was it about the industry during that time where it was kind of like a dark shift when Death Row and the West Coast was really starting to take heed because once Suge came to the picture, it kind of brought the street element into the business. While it was stories of, you know, mob guys in the industry, roulette records and all of that stuff, it was just out in the forefront with how Suge did things with, at Death Row. They were all there. It's no different. It, it wasn't different. It wasn't different from, I'm not going to start saying names, but it wasn't different from Roulette and what they did and what Suge did. The difference was that Suge um, had a different kind of swag about it. He wanted it known. Whereas the other cats were like, keep us in the background. We're here if we need to be here, but keep us in the background. So right. I think Suge wanted people to know where he was with it. And, you know, what he did to hip hop wasn't good. You know, what he did to hip hop wasn't good. It was rolling. It was great. East Coast, West Coast rivalry was great as a rivalry. It didn't have to be anything beyond that. So that's, that's the problem for me. Um, you know, those guys were great. Right. The production was great. Their music was great. Their personalities were great. They were colorful enough. Dr. Dre's colorful enough. You don't need no extra. <clears throat> but Suge wanted people to know, I'm the seasoning behind this. I'm the, you know, wasn't necessary. Just wasn't. And, and it took a toll on hip hop. As you see, no Biggie, no Tupac. Right. Yeah, because looking back at it now, it was all unnecessary because I look at it, there's enough room for everybody to eat. What Diddy was doing was Bad Boy was successful. What Suge was doing with Death Row was successful. And it's just everybody that's in the background that's hyping it up, gassing it up, instead of saying, we're two successful men in the industry that is set to divide and conquer. Let's celebrate and not divide. Right, correct. Um, the, the thing for me... Uh, the thing for me is, um, wait, hold on a second. On the terrace? On the terrace? Yeah. Um, it's not the Cadenza. Oh, I can't remember. The, uh, it's R22. Uh, the furnace. Oh, what's it called? Um, I'll ask you. It's R22. Is that it? R22. Is Refrigerant? Yeah, R22. No, that's the old refrigerant. The new refrigerant is. No, um, that's the one that it's the coil is for. No, 410A. No, 410. That's upstairs. No, that, okay, well, 410 is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in interview mode. It's yeah, it's upstairs this. on Goodman, but they said the coil should have been changed because it's not, it's different when you said it was R. They call it the furnace, call it the furnace. Okay, but listen. 410 is the fluid that goes I, through it. I know what 410 is. The right. other one doesn't say 410, but I was saying it must be changed. I was trying to find the line set. What did he call it? Was 
No, no, he's talking about the line set, which is the lines that go early on in helping Def Row get on the ground. And I think his contribution to the music industry and Leon Silvers doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, you know, I don't know how much Dick Griffey had to do with, with, with Solar, yes. How much he had to do with Death Row, I don't know. Um, but with Death Row, they made a mistake and, and, and they messed up the industry, the hip hop industry to me, which I, I think finally now it's better. But, you know, losing Biggie was huge for New York. Huge. It, it's, I mean, I'm a Biggie fan. I'm a Jay-Z fan. I'm a, a New York urban hip hop fan. I love West Coast music, but I love and lived East Coast hip hop. Um, but back to Solar and those cats, they were just like Clarence had them on 25 and anybody else is on 10. You know, he knew what to do to get those guys on and they were amazing at it. You know, I look at their relationship with Don Cornelius and anything they broke was able to be on Soul Train. Anything they did was always on Soul Train. I watched that, I was like, yo, these guys are really smart. They're great marketers. Mm, definitely very great. And then also what LA and Babyface did and setting up LaFace down in Atlanta that yes. led the pipeline to everything that came out of Atlanta. Now you being based in New York, was it a tough sell once Outkast started to get play and Goody Mob and everything coming out of Atlanta because but outside of you know everything that's coming out of Atlanta, you had No Limit, you had Rap A Lot out of Houston. And it was really a tough sell for the South to get exposure outside of the Southern region. Right. What happened is they came to New York like a flow. It was like once they came, they were self-contained. They knew what they were doing. They weren't trying to sell stuff here. They were just trying to market themselves. They were selling from down there. They were breaking themselves down there. And they knew what they had hits. When they started coming to New York, it was like one hit after another. It was like, like a barrage. It's like, oh, my God, another one. Oh, another one. One artist after another. You know, you had Nelly and St. Lunatics. <clears throat> You know, Baby was doing his thing. Then you had Lil Wayne, and, you know, it was just one. And then you had T.I. You had they, the South just came like a barrage and never stopped. They and haven't stopped to this day. Nope, it is still going strong now with the model of the industry changing due to the shifting in technology. Do you think that it's more set up for the artists, per se, to come in and say, hey, I can come in, already have a buzz via social media of my followers. I just need you to distribute my things for me to get a bigger push. And I want to keep all my publishing. So how do you think the industry has responded to that? And do you think that they learned their, from their mistakes with pushing Napster aside? Not well, not well. The labels have, you know, it took them a while to get it together. Um, I don't think they, they, they did. Now they're doing better. But I think the artist now realizes his power and he's using it. But it depends on the level he's at. If he's at a level where he's already looking at a million people or half a million people and he has that many followers, he's going to win. Look at Justin Bieber. He had a million followers on MySpace. He was a hit. It was easy. You come up with somebody who's got 10,000 followers, not so much. 100,000 is the beginning. When you get to three and 400,000, now you're going to look at artists. Other than that, he's going to have to build to that level. So that's what the labels are looking at. They're looking at artists that come in with half a million followers. Now he's got a shot. If he doesn't have that, then he's going to have to earn it. He's not getting his publishing. He's not getting, you know, his masters. He's not. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and- if he gets his masters, he's got 500,000 followers. If he gets mm-hmm. a deal like that, then you Right, and this was back in the days when you had artist development. Right, and this was back in the days when you had artist development where you had to develop yourself before you can be able to go out on stage and do your shows. And it seemed like now labels want you to already come in with buzz, already developed so they could just send you out. Self-contained, right, because now the labels are more distributors than anything. And they're gonna take money from your streaming. They're going to take money from your publishing. They're willing to share it, but now they're taking some. They're not just letting you say, you know, keep your money, keep your masters. They're not doing that. You know, you have to earn that, <coughs> which, which is harder. You know, it's harder to do. Right, because I was um, did an interview recently with a session musician. He told me of a songwriter who shall remain nameless, had mm-hmm. a big song that got over 2 million streams on Spotify, but right. the ASCAP check was only for, like, five six k that's how it is that's how it is i mean those streams are everything but they're nothing you know what i mean they're everything you don't get the revenue from them it's really hard it's really mm-hmm. really hard. this is harder now to me than it was before this business is, is definitely tightened up a lot uh, the labels made mistakes too the labels have problems they made mistakes so i would think that um the most important thing an artist could do now is Develop your social media um, relationships and, you know, your platform. Develop that first before you even get your hits. Develop your social media, get people to like you, then come to the label. This is what I have. This is who I am. This is what I've done. These are my songs. Come that way because that's how you're going to get a deal. Other than that, it's not going to happen for you. Right. And uh, last question before I get you on out here. How do you think that the concert industry will bounce back once after COVID is contained? Because we've seen a loss in revenue for the concert season, tour promoters out of work, lighting rig, everybody behind the scenes out of work. And it's pretty much like if my money comes from touring, I can't tour right now. Do you see maybe in 2021 a little bit of a bounce back or do you think it'll take a little bit longer than that? Well, I'm a nightclub owner, so my background is nightclubs. Um, and, you know, I market and promote events as well. So I would say that uh, 2021, mid to end of the year, is a resurgence. Only if there's a vaccine. Um, if there's no vaccine, then it's 2022. Because then COVID will be completely gone. It's not going to last forever, but it's going to last a long time. Um, I believe the vaccine is going to come probably at the end of the year, beginning of next year, and people will feel the confidence again to start coming out. Broadway is smart enough to shut down. Um, follow them. When Broadway reopens, we're reopened. Then everything comes back. Until then, you forget it. Yep, That's forget reality. it. Yeah, you can forget it, and then there'll be virtual parties, and hopefully if you're a DJ, don't have your stuff get zapped online. Now, do you have any shout-outs you want to give before we conclude this interview and also plug your social media? Yeah, of course. Uh, let's see. Of course, I'm uh, Kevin Sugar Daddy Woodley. Uh, Sugar Daddy's my DJ name. Kevin Woodley's my name, so Kevin Sugar Daddy Woodley. Um, Instagram is Sugar Daddy the DJ. Um um also instagram is the inkwell nyc okay so that's the inkwell nyc uh let's see 
DJ Sugar Dad at Gmail is my email. Um, Facebook is Kevin S D Woodley. That's one page, and Kevin Woodley is the other. Kevin Woodley's full. Kevin S D Woodley S D Woodley's half full. I'll have a third one by the top of the year. Um, yeah, pretty much that. So shout I do a live broadcast every Friday between five and seven. Um, live, you know, from all my pages. I have usually about 10 streams going at the same time. So yeah, that's me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, look at him, look him up on all his social media, stay informed, stay in the know. This interview will be available on most streaming platforms, Anchor, Breaker, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and the video will be available on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com slash J85. Ladies and gentlemen, from beyond the album cover, Mr. Kevin Woodley. Kevin, thank you so very much for coming on to the podcast, sir. Pleasure, my brother. Kevin Sugar Daddy Woodley out. Thank Peace you. Peace and love, y'all.